I'd like to invite you to open up a Bible that you can find in the pew in front of you. You can use an app on your phone. We are going to be looking at the text from Transfiguration Sunday that Pastor Abel just read, as well as some other verses to help us understand the context of what we see here in this amazing experience in Scripture of Jesus hanging out with Moses and Elijah. Now, I'll admit, every time we have a Sunday like today, where it's a very familiar scripture passage, if you've grown up in the church, if you're familiar with this story, we read this every year. We celebrate the transfiguration, and it reminds me of one of my favorite church jokes. There was a pastor giving a kid's message, a short kid's message, And he had the kids gather around the front of the altar, and he says, now kids, I'm thinking of an animal, and I'm going to give you some clues. When When you guess what this animal is, go ahead and raise your hand. And so the pastor begins, and he says, well, this animal has two long ears and a bushy tail, and no hands go up. He says, well, this animal that I'm thinking of hops on four legs, and it's known to like carrots. And still no child raises their hand. And the pastor's starting to get nervous. His whole object lesson is dependent on this. And he says, okay, boys and girls, this animal comes out and is best associated with the season or the holiday of Easter where this animal comes out and gives candy baskets to boys and girls. Finally, a little boy raises his hand and the pastor says, whew. So what do you think this animal is? And the boy says, Well, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sounds an awful lot like a bunny rabbit. (laughs) And I think of that joke on a day like Transfiguration Sunday, because again, if you are a lifelong Christian, you are very familiar with this text, and your temptation might be to say, Pastor, I know the end of this sermon already, it's Jesus. At the same time, if you're new to Christianity, if you're exploring the Christian faith, perhaps you know somebody in your life who's a Christian who it seems like all they talk about is Jesus, that the answer to every single problem in the world is Jesus. And look, I'll admit to you, when I went to college 21 years ago, undergraduate at a Christian college, I went there not because it was a Christian school, I went there for a scholarship. When I walk on this Christian campus, I see these students And they love Jesus, and they're praising Jesus, and all they want to talk about is Jesus. And I was like, who are these people? Because I didn't at that time understand what it was like to be in love with Jesus and have that kind of faith where everything depends on him. And as we look at this text of transfiguration that we just read, what we'll study for the sermon, there's a very important question for us to wrestle with, whether, again, you're a lifelong Christian or you're brand new to the faith, you're seeking Christianity, trying to figure out what you believe, the question is this, is Jesus big enough to overshadow every aspect of your life? Is Jesus big enough that you can trust him with every decision that you make, with every situation that you find yourself in, good or bad, is Jesus big enough that we could revolve our entire lives around him to lean on him for everything? Or the opposite question that we're faced with as we read this text, is Jesus something that we just pull off the shelf when it's convenient, when we need something? Is Jesus just somebody that we worship occasionally on a Sunday morning or scroll through the online thing, we click a sermon as we're going to some other place? Is Jesus big enough 
to overshadow everything in our life. That's what we're tasked with today. That's the question that this account in Scripture forces us to deal with. And to do that, again, open up your Bibles. We're going to start with verse 28, and we're going to try to answer these two questions. Who is Jesus, according to this text? And then number two, what has Jesus come to do? We read, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Right away, we're forced with the question here. We're faced with the question. What are these sayings that Luke believes are so important that he wants to highlight them, these sayings that happened eight days prior? Well, if you look at your Bible, let's jump back a little bit to verse 18. Jesus had just done a great miracle. He had fed 5,000 people out of a few loaves of bread, out of a few small fish. 5,000 men, women, children ate, and there was so much food left over, they had baskets full. And these crowds that were with Jesus were amazed by him. They wanted something from Jesus. This guy can provide for us. And so Jesus takes the 12, and he goes away from the large crowd, goes up again praying. We always see Jesus, his life of prayer is so uh, imitatable, it's so awesome. He's praying with his disciples, and then afterwards he asks them this question, verse 19, or verse 18, I'm sorry. Who do the crowds, all those people who had just witnessed the miracle, who do they say that I am? And they respond, John the Baptist, uh, some say Elijah the prophet, and others say that you're just a prophet in a long line of prophets from Israel's history, and you're here to do more prophetic work. But notice what they don't say. There's no indication, at least from what the disciples were hearing on the street, that Jesus was anything more than just a prophet. There's no mention of him being the Messiah. There's no mention of him being God. There's no mention of him being the Christ. So it's then Peter who steps up boldly by faith. Jesus asks the 12, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Christ of God. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Peter's proclamation of faith here. It's very clear. The Holy Spirit has moved in his heart. He understands that on some level, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the Christ. The problem, though, with Peter and the other disciples is they don't yet realize the mode of the mission of Christ. They don't quite understand what Jesus has come to this earth to do. And so Jesus goes into sermon mode. He goes into teaching mode. And these are the sayings that Luke references in verse 28. Listen to this. First of all, verse 21, he says, uh, do not tell this to anyone. Why? Because the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. And at this point, uh, the disciples would have said something like this. Wait, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? This is not the promised Messiah that we've been reading about in Scripture. This is not what a Messiah looks like. A a Messiah is powerful and conquering. The Messiah is going to come and restore what was taken from us, restore our honor and our glory in Jerusalem. What is this dying and suffering business? And so Jesus continues, and this is, uh, by the way, not a text that we typically will read on like a Christmas or an Easter Sunday. This is in your face, Jesus saying, this is what's at stake. If you want to come after me and follow me, this is going to be required of you as well. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. Again, I'll ask that question. Is Jesus big enough that you might deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him daily, Jesus says? Is he big enough that you could let go of some of the trappings of this world to seek after his kingdom, to be generous with your time, with your money, with your very life, to be self-sacrificing? This is what Jesus is asking of the disciples in this moment. What he asks us today as well as followers of him, is he big enough? And so then, knowing the hearts of the disciples, he takes them on this, what we might call a kid's message for adults, this object lesson where he's going to show him exactly what it means that he is the holy one, that he is the glorified one. And so we jump back into our text here today, verse 29. As he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And now let's pause here. This again, remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and eight days ago they had this teaching, and they would have been thinking about this. What does this mean that Jesus is going to die, that he's going to suffer? What does it mean that I'm, as a follower, going to in some way suffer and in some ways maybe even die for Jesus? He's thinking about that. And then also remember that the crowds, the majority of people uh, right now in history where Jesus is speaking, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's just another one of the prophets, Moses and Elijah, Isaiah, And so Jesus here is talking with Moses and Elijah, but notice that it's Jesus' face that is glowing. It's Jesus' face, as Pastor Abel said, and it was a good children's message, by the way. I know. It's his face that's shining like the sun. Not Moses, not Elijah. Also notice that they're talking about his departure. You know, if Jesus was just another prophet in a long line of prophets, it would have been Jesus asking the questions. Hey, Moses, tell me about that time when you parted the Red Sea and the people walked through on dry ground, the water teeming up on its side. Moses, what was that like? And if Jesus was just another one of the prophets, he would have asked Elijah, who Scripture tells us didn't die. He actually was brought up uh, to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah, what was that like? What was that like? What was it like surrounding you and going up and seeing God face to face? What was that like? Instead, the focus is 100% on Jesus. That tells us something. But when we really see the purpose and the intent of this experience that Jesus has, when we really see who he is in the following verses, jump down with me to verse 33, or I'm sorry, 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It says, not knowing what he said. Another translation says he was a little bit out of his mind. He was in a daze. He had been sleeping during prayer time. He wakes up to this amazing experience. He doesn't know what to say. He just wants this party to continue which doesn't exactly please the Lord because of what happens next. It says that as Peter is speaking, as he's just babbling all this stuff out, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, why were they afraid? 
If you know your Old Testament, if you know especially the book of Exodus, anytime Moses was on top of a mountain and a cloud appeared, it appeared with thunder and with lightning because it contained within the cloud the very presence of God himself. And oftentimes it was his wrath and his judgment on the people. And so James and Peter and John being good Jewish boys, they would have known this is not a good situation. God is here in his glory and they were afraid. But instead of judgment, instead of wrath, God comes with affirmation for his son. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. And then this command, listen to him. Remember what Jesus had just said eight days prior. Listen to him. This is my son. So what we have here is... Jesus is not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. Jesus is the unique son of God in the flesh come into this world. And so we can say with confidence as we read this in his word that yes, Jesus is big enough. Jesus is big enough to overshadow every aspect of your life. Jesus is big enough when you get the cancer diagnosis, when you lose the job, when you're sitting by the graveside of a loved one. Jesus is big enough when someone disappoints you and leaves you and hurts you. Jesus is big enough that we can give him everything. We can deny ourselves. We can live with generous hearts generous spirits because Jesus the son of God was in the flesh that is who Jesus is I was trying to think of what's a what's a practical experience for us that we can apply this to in our real lives and this came to my mind a couple months ago I took a job a very part part time job with one of our seminaries Concordia Seminary St. Louis uh, Missouri that's where I went uh, to become a pastor that's where Pastor Abel went Pastor Nate went I took this because I was very um uh, concerned about a statistic that I heard. In 10 years, in our little denomination that we have, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, in 10 years, half of our 6,000 pastors, half, are going to be eligible for retirement. In order to replace that gap, we need about 400 men a year going to seminary. Right now, we have 150 which means that in 10 years, there's a potential to have 3,000 or 3,500 churches without a pastor to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments. This is a serious issue for us as Lutheran Christians in our little world in which we live. And then a few months ago, I was at Concordia University, Seward, Nebraska. That's where I went to undergraduate. That's where I learned how to be a DCE, a director of Christian education, what I was before becoming a pastor. Courtney, Cassie, and Karin, our whole education team, that's where they were trained to serve the church and help people grow in their faith. And as I was there meeting with the director of the program, he told me that this year there were only three interns that were available to the over 50 churches that were looking for a DCE to help in youth ministry and kids ministry and adult education. There were only three. Now we share all that because many of us, when we hear those statistics, it scares us. We are worried for the future of our kids and our grandkids. And so applying what we just learned about Jesus, we can go to him because Jesus is big enough. He is the Lord of the church and he will provide. We can put our faith in him and trust him. And at the same time, I can't help wonder if there's some people here in the room today watching at home who perhaps God has put a burden on their heart to be a called church worker in our church, a pastor, a DCE, a deaconess, a teacher in one of our Lutheran schools. By the way, there's also a teacher shortage and principal shortage. 
And if you're not called to be a church worker, you are called as a Christian to deny yourself, to pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. How is God calling you this day to be the hands and feet of Christ in your neighborhood, in your family, in your place of work? As you walk downtown Denver and you see the homelessness and the population of people who are dying every day without Jesus, without the very basic needs of this world, we are called, my dear friend, brother and sister in Christ, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to bring the good news, the gospel presence of Christ to our neighbors. How is he calling you to do that? Now, if that brings you some consternation, if you're not sure of what that looks like, or how do you even know that you can put your faith in this big Jesus? What if these guys just picked up this pen, uh, pad and paper, they wrote down this story, and this didn't really happen? How do we know? Well, we get that with our second point, What did Jesus come to do, this God in the flesh? Jump with me back to verse 31. The answer lies within this conversation that they're having. It's Moses, it's Elijah, the two great heroes of the Old Testament, speaking with Jesus, specifically speaking with him about his departure, the text says. It's a very clever uh, play on words. Luke here is using, in the Greek, the word is exodus. The very same exodus that Moses, God used Moses to bring the people out of captivity in Israel all those thousands of years prior. The very same uh, exodus that ushered in this feast called the Passover. It's the greatest salvation event in Old Testament history, but it only saved the Israelite people. They're speaking about Jesus' exodus, his departure from this world to the next, and they say this, that he was about to accomplish let me ask you this. What does death accomplish for you and I? Absolutely nothing. And I was reading a biography recently about a German pastor. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know his name. He served as a pastor during World War II, Nazi Germany. He was one of the few faithful pastors who stood up to Hitler, who was actively working to bring people the gospel, even though that was illegal. And eventually he was killed for it. He was martyred because of his faith and because of his active work during World War II. But as I was reading the biography, it struck me there was actually only uh, one part of one chapter that dealt with his death. The rest of the biography had to do with his life, the things that he accomplished, his great faith, the books that he wrote. And as you read the Gospels, however, you might notice that all the Gospels, about a quarter of each of them, and half of it in the Gospel of Mark, deal with Jesus' death. One day in history, an entire quarter of Jesus' biography is about his death. Why? Because Jesus' death accomplished something. When we die, we die. When Jesus died, it was the end of death itself. It was the end of the power that sin has over us. It was the end of the power that death has over us. When Jesus died, the very death of death was killed forever. For those who believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his death meant so much more than any other death in the history of the world because of the freedom that it brings us because it says that our sin was actually nailed to that cross with Jesus and our sin was actually buried in that cave with Jesus and three days later when Jesus rose from the dead all those things were forever washed away and gone. That's the power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how we know today that no matter what is going on in our life, no matter how we've lived our lives as Christians in the past, 
no matter what mistakes we've made, no matter what opportunities we've missed, no matter what diagnosis we're facing with, whatever it is, yes, Jesus, by his death, by his resurrection can truly overshadow all of our life because we have one in Jesus who came to this earth for us, for you. So that on a day like today, we may pray a prayer, Jesus, would you please overshadow everything in my life? Would you give me the peace that I need, the grace that I need to forgive, the hope that I need in an uncertain future. Jesus, would you overshadow my heart? In your name we pray. Amen.